Hi, and thanks for joining in on the Pastor's Class podcast. Whether you missed a week of class or just want to re-listen to a message, this is the resource for you. Be sure to visit our website at pastorsclass.org for any other information you might need. We hope this message blesses you. And again, thank you for listening. You know, I'm not much of a joke, guys. So uh, my daughter, Grace, here's tonight. This one's partly in her honor. She always says I need to be more funny. So I have a joke tonight, kicking off with a joke. And the reason I'm telling this joke is honestly because one of my business partners, he came to me this past week and he said, Scott, I've got a joke you're going to love. And I normally don't really love his jokes. He doesn't probably listen to the podcast. I don't want to hurt his feelings, but I'm just kidding. Uh, He came and said, I got a joke you're going to really like because it's got two things in it that you really love. Uh, golf and church. I'm like, okay, I can get behind that. He said, well, here's the joke. So he said, there was this group of four guys from this church that were out one morning, a Tuesday morning, playing golf at a local course, and they go up to the first tee, and they're getting started, and there's this group in front of them, teed off a little bit before them, and they're waiting on the first tee. They're watching this group out there, and this group just is going everywhere. I mean, they're on one side of the fairway, and When they get to the green, they just don't even look like they know what they're doing. And it takes them literally 20 or 30 minutes to play this hole. So the whole time, this group from the church that had at least one pastor in it and a couple of members in the group, they're back there just thinking, man, what in the world is going on? This, they just, they don't even look like they really know how to play. So they're like, well, we'll give it some more time. And they finish that hole. They go to the next hole and it kind of repeats itself. And it just takes another 30 minutes to play that hole. And again, these four people in front of them they're just like it's like they've never played this game before and they're just here and there and they get on the green and it just takes forever so this goes on for two or three holes and finally they're just like listen this is crazy it's going to take us nine hours to play 18 holes so we're just out we're going to go in and grab some breakfast a late breakfast and just hang out and go home and they go in there and they're sitting down and they're having their breakfast, and they see the club pro over, over across the room, and they motion for him to come over, and like all good members do, they probably complained a little bit. They keep motioning him to come over, and they're like, you know, listen, what in the world is going on out there? We were behind this group, and honestly, it took them like 30 minutes to play every hole, and this is just crazy. We just... I mean, I don't understand what you're doing and what, why you would even let them out there. And you can just see the club pro. He's just looking, oh, my gosh. He just feels so bad. He's like, I am so sorry. There's this, this home of golfers, and they love the game, but they're all blind. And every so often, we give them a tee time just to let them out on the course. And he said, I'm sorry. I'll make sure this never, ever happens again. So he walks away, and that member's just like, oh, my gosh, are you kidding me? He's like, he's looking at his pastor, and he's like, I'm so sorry. I, I feel so terrible that I just made such a fool out of myself, and I'm complaining. I didn't know they were blind. And then the pastor looks at him, and he says, yeah. He said, but my question is, if they're blind, why don't they just play at night? <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> it's not a Prestonwood group or nothing like that. It's, I'm sure it's another church. You know, it's funny, too. I was going to tell a joke very similar to that about gambling on the golf course with someone that's blind. And I had this built into a, uh, into a sermon, and I was going to preach this sermon at the VA hospital in Waco. And luckily, the night before, I called the pastor down there, and I said, okay, I know this is a special, you know, you know chapel. Tell me a little bit about the people that are going to be there. And he's like, 
well, you know, probably 50% of them will be blind or partially blind. I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> so I'm like, it's like 10 o'clock. I'm rewriting the joke. I cut it out. I wasn't going to go over well. I don't know if it would have been good. So anyway, we're, uh, we're going to continue in Acts. Grace, how was that? Pretty good? William laughed. I tried it out on William the other day. He laughed about it. So We're still in Acts. Tonight we're in Acts 11 and 12. We're going to cover a couple of chapters tonight. Last week, Stuart teaching uh, in chapter 10 was really an important, critical chapter, if you will, in the Bible. It's when uh, the gospel was first taken to the Gentiles, to you and I, and in some would describe what happened and what um, Luke in chapter 10 and verse 45 describes as the Gentile Pentecost. And if you go back and look at that, it was a time after he had preached the gospel and uh, God said he poured out his Holy Spirit on that place. And similarly, in tonight's couple of chapters, uh, you also have another pivotal event. Uh, after the first Jewish Pentecost, if you will, you know, the, the church of Jerusalem uh, was planted. And here we see in chapter 11, the first Gentile church is planted. And it's planted in the city of Antioch. And we'll talk a little bit more about Antioch as we go through the rest of Acts. It was a very vibrant city. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It dated back to 300 B.C. And it was a city that was filled not only with commerce, but most commentators would say and historians with lots of sin. And as you can imagine, in these early days of the church, as the gospel is spreading uh, as the gospel and the church goes forward, so does generally persecution. So in these chapters, we also see persecution continue in the church. In fact, we see the first of the 12 apostles, the 12 original disciples, if you will, to be martyred for their faith. And, uh, and it's James, uh, the brother of John. Uh, if you'll remember, they're referred to often as the sons of thunder. And there's lots of reasons they got that name, but... You know, there's some cool verses out there. I love the one, there's, uh, I think it's over in Luke, actually, where uh, Jesus is in and he's, he's uh, ministering to uh, some people, some, some uh, Samarians, and they're not wanting to listen. They're like, listen, we don't care about what you're saying. And, and James and John says, they look at Jesus like, should we call down fire from heaven just to consume them? So that'll give you a little bit about what James and John was about. But in this couple of chapters, James loses his life, and uh, he's killed by Herod. We'll read about it. Um, in fact, a little bit of trivia, it is actually the only place in Scripture where one of the disciples, their death, their martyrism is actually described. Uh, most of what we know about how the apostles died come from books and history other than Scripture. But here's what I really love about the book of Acts, and in particular what we're going to see for the rest of the book of Acts. And that is just simply this. When you study the early church, when you study this growth and the spreading of the gospel, and, and, and in particular the church that we're going to talk about, the first all-inclusive church, what really gets me excited is the fact that we are that church. I mean, you ever think about that? We are that church. That's us, or at least it should be. And you know, when you study this, if you think of it from that standpoint, it really does make it a little bit different, doesn't it? I mean, because, you know, I could talk about that and being the bigger big C church and everybody. I could talk about it in the context of it being Prestonwood. But, but for us, I want to think about it in the context of this class. 
Okay, because this is a church, right? This is, this is a small church, and we are that church. And I'll tell you something else. You know, we've talked about it a lot, especially when we went through the books of Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, is, you know, it really should be pretty easy for us to put ourselves into the minds of, the, of these people and these beginning people that are building the church, because the times then and the times today, they really are very similar if you think about it. I mean, you know, when they were going out and, and planning churches, and we'll see Paul take three missionary journeys through the remaining parts of the book of Acts, when they're going out and they're starting churches and spreading the gospel, they're just, you know, there's, there's resistance everywhere. There's persecution everywhere. They're educating people. They're, they're battling through, you know, people that are trying to persecute them and push them down. And, you know, maybe, you know, the Bible's always applicable, right, obviously, but for some reason, it just feels like we have so much in common because today, I mean, if you look at our world more and more, if you're a Christian, you kind of almost feel like a minority and you certainly feel like, you know, I, even myself, I sometimes, you know, you're just almost afraid. I mean, William and I were having this conversation the other night of just how you live in this world today as a Christian. You know, if you're a young child coming up through, you know, starting today, he's 10. I mean, his whole life and how it's going to change. And, you know, it's just different and it's difficult. And so we have a lot in common with this early church. So what I want us to do is really kind of think of it that way. And if you do, it really, I think, will add to what we're learning. And in fact, what we're going to do is we're going to do for the rest of kind of Acts, we're going to do a little kind of series, if you will, within the series where each week we try to pull out just some lessons, if you will, from the early church. And my hope is, my prayer is, is that as we look at this and we learn from the early church that we can apply it in our own lives. And we can apply it in the lives of this class because what they were doing then, you know, they, they, they birthed, obviously, the church uh, God through them. And look what happened. I mean, just these initial 12 that then expands out and, and now it's going to expand into the church in Antioch. From there, they just, they took the gospel to the ends of the world. We're still trying to do that today, but think about the impact we could have. This church, this church, if we can just learn from God's word, if we can just pull these lessons at heart and apply them in our own lives and the lives of this class. So that's what we're going to try to do. Uh, put ourselves in their shoes, learn from them. And, do, and pick up these lessons, if you will, each week from the books uh, or from the chapters that we're going to finish in the book of Acts. And tonight, I've got three lessons, and I've got some handouts on the table where I listed them. We'll fill in some blanks. But there's three lessons we're going to talk about. The first lesson, be careful believing your way is the way. And I, listen, I could have said this a bunch of different ways. I could have said, be careful believing your way is the only way, that your way is the right way. But really, the message is, the lesson here is, is, is about this judgmental attitude of, if you don't look like I do or act like I do, maybe you're not doing it the right way. And we encounter this here. In fact, Peter does when he comes back after he's been out uh, in what was described in chapter 10 last week. He comes back, he's actually called back, and he comes back to the church in Jerusalem. And they want a, an account, really, of what happened there. And it starts out a little confrontational there. We'll start in chapter 11. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and you ate with them? So really, 
this is a little bit of a form of racism, isn't it? I mean, you've got this uh, circumcision party, uh, which may or may not actually be Christians. They're in the church of Jerusalem, but we know that there's lots of people in the church that aren't necessarily believers. They may be, okay, but they're a group of, of probably Jewish men. Uh, that were the circumcised group, and they've got a problem with what's been taking place in chapter 10. They're upset, really. They're criticizing, and they're mad because Peter went and had dinner with these Gentiles. It's like, how could you do that? And uh, while there's no real indication necessarily that this was widespread, if you will, inside the church in Jerusalem, it's a pretty good reminder, though, isn't it, that it's not really what you care that matters. It's not your way that matters. But it's God's way. It's God's way that matters. And, you know, obviously they believed in what they were saying. They believed that Peter was wrong to go have dinner with these Gentiles. It's not like they weren't convicted in their way. They believed it. But it doesn't matter, right? It's God's way that matters. And really that's Peter's response, we'll see, in a nutshell. Is he wants to, he's coming to him and saying, listen, you just don't understand. Let me just tell you why that took place. And that's what he does here in, in the next part in chapter 11, I'm not going to read all of it because when he starts there in verse 4, he says, But Peter began and explained it to them in order. He said, I was, I, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. And last week, if you were here, uh, we talked, Stuart talked a lot about this vision. And basically in this vision... You'll see it describes it here. He sees these, this, this, these birds in the air and reptiles and beasts of prey. And here's a voice that says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And then later he, he's saying, no, I can't do that. These are unclean because it would have also been something that would have violated their religion at that time. But then the voice answered a second time from heaven. It says there in verse 9, what God has made clean, do not call common. Okay, and then if you skip down to verse 15, he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord. Think about that one. Underline that. I remembered the word of the Lord. Because if you are wanting to understand God's way, that's a good place to start. The God's word. I remember the word of the Lord. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? It's God's way that matters. Okay, it's God's way that matters. But let me tell you, we have a way of, of wanting to interject our own way, don't we? I mean, I think everyone here would agree, yes, God, it's God's way that matters. But I'm going to tell you, when you look across the church, the, the big C church, if you will, we sure find a lot of ways to be divided, don't we? We sure find a lot of ways to criticize and to be divided. And, and, and note here, the criticism wasn't about really the baptism. It wasn't about the gospel being presented even. It wasn't about even the Holy Spirit. It was about their actions. You ate with these folks. You broke tradition. And today, in this world, 2018 in the church, that could probably take a lot of different forms, right? I don't like their music. I don't like the way they look. I don't like the way they dress. I don't like the tattoos. I don't like the way they raise their hands. Makes people feel uncomfortable. I heard a unique one the other day when I was sitting down with someone in ministry, how they were divided over the word favor, 
They were mad because he was using the word favor. They thought that was way too charismatic. And he was like, what, you don't believe in God's favor? Well, it scares people, I guess. And so we can find all kinds of ways to be divided. Uh, in the church today is just as prevalent as it was then. But what we've really got to, I think, remember is it's not about what we want. It's not about what we like. It's not about what we prefer. It's about what God wants. It's about following God's word. It's about following the example of Christ. You want to be, you want to criticize about something? Criticize because they don't share the gospel, okay? Because they're not teaching from God's word. But all these other things, they just get in the way. So our first lesson is don't be like this uh, circumcised party, okay? Don't ever get into the trap and fall into this trap of believing that your way is the way. We always got to believe in what God says. My second thing, ordinary people can do extraordinary things for God. Ordinary people can do extraordinary things for God. Let me tell you, the church in Antioch, this is such a great example of this. I mean, it really is. I mean, starting in verse 19 there in just this short, I think, 11 or so verses, it talks about it. But the history and the significance to the spread of the gospel, uh, the Antioch church, I mean... It's where Paul started at least two of his missionary journeys. It's the first place actually where believers were called Christians. Had just a tremendous impact on the spreading of the gospel. In fact, I pulled out where one commentator said this. He said, Antioch is a model community engaging in evangelism, teaching, and ministry to brothers in need. There is no racial prejudice, only the testimony of divine reconciliation. Sounds like a good church, doesn't it? We sure need it today. So let's look at verse 19, and it talks about this uh, birthing, if you will, of the first Gentile church. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on the coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church, that would be the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. It's probably been about a decade now since he, the conversion on the road to Damascus. He went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. You know, I read this over and over again. And man, as I read it, I just got excited. I was like, man, I wish I would have been there. I wanted to just be a part of this. And, I mean, this is exciting. This is groundbreaking, right? I mean, we've taken the gospel to the Gentiles. This, this was unheard of in, in the midst of the people that, that accepted Jesus. It, just, it was unheard of. What they were doing crossed boundaries, crossed racial boundaries. It went out to, to people that they would have never even had dinner with. So big, huge things are taking place. And then I started reminding myself of what I started with. We are that church. We are Barnabas. I mean, this church wasn't started by a bunch of seminary grads, okay? This wasn't a bunch of PhDs, all right? Barnabas was just a layperson. He was just like you and me. 
All right, he was just out there trying to follow Jesus and do the best that he could. He partners up with, with Saul, who became also known as Paul, who was basically a former member of ISIS. Okay, so we've got an ISIS member, we've got a lay guy, all right, and then if you look over in, in chapter 13, in the first part of 13 there, it says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, they've got Barnabas, okay, then you've got Simon, who was called Niger, you've got Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. I mean, think about that for a second. That Herod that they're describing there is the Herod that was the Herod when the King Herod when Jesus was killed. So they've got his lifelong friend, all right? So this is the group and Saul. You know, and what's really interesting, if you go back and study and really look into it, this group here, other than Barnabas and Saul, the people that they describe here in list, they're never mentioned again in the whole Bible, ever. This group is only mentioned right here, and yet they were the ones there teaching, leading at the first all-inclusive church. I mean, think about that for a second. That group, could it be any of us in here, couldn't it? I mean, if you were rewriting this and we were that church, you'd be writing names down of people in this room, and later people would go back and they'd be like, who's Bill Dickerson? Bill, say that's for you to shout out for Bill. Who's, who's, who's Stuart Hardy? They'd be wondering, but they'd know, listen, these ordinary people did extraordinary things. And, you know, I looked deeper because I wanted to just think about it, and it wasn't necessarily one of my lessons, so it's, it's a little bit of a bonus. But I was wondering, okay, what did they do? Was it magical? Does it describe this anywhere in this? Because if you, these 11, 12, and 13, they kind of blend together at the same time. So I was trying to figure out what is it exactly that they, they did. And I kind of came up with three things. And the first one is, is if you looked over there in 26 where it says when uh, Saul and Barnabas were there, it says for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. That's what Jesus told them to do, right? Go make disciples, teaching. Let me tell you what, you want to start building a church, you want to start doing something special that, like they did back then, you start by teaching people God's word, being a disciple maker. That's what we need to be doing. You know, we've started programs in this class even now where we've paired up some people just in this class doing discipleship. We need more of that. Okay, it's important. Doesn't mean you, you're weak. Doesn't mean, you know, anything really other than you need people in your life that are there to help you. You know, that's got a different perspective that can speak truth and life into your life. But you start with that. That's what Jesus told us to do. It's a great commission after all. So that was where it started. The second thing that I thought was interesting was they started, they were giving church. You know, out of giving, I think births also serving. But if you looked at the last part of chapter 11, uh, Agabus, who was a prophet, comes to them and basically tells them about a famine. And there at the end of, in verse 29, it says, everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers in, living in Judea. And they did so, sending it with, to, the, to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So they were giving. They had the brothers in need in another area that there was a great famine. And it says that they gave according to what they had. It may have been very little, but they gave. You know, and I thought what was also interesting about this is I started thinking about it, you know, kind of maybe from the mind of a modern day giver and, and myself too. I put myself in this category a lot is I wonder how much they knew about the famine. I mean, remember, you don't have social media and you don't have uh, 24-hour news. My guess is they knew almost nothing. Some guy shows up and says, listen, there's a big famine over there and they need help. 
and everybody gives. I mean, that's a big, bold step of faith, isn't it? I'm sure they weren't just living in absolute abundance. You know, but sometimes we want to, you know, myself included, kind of make judgment calls about how it's used and where it goes. You know, and that really, that's not the heart of giving. The heart of giving is handing it over in faith and letting God do the rest. And that's what he did. So they were givers, and I think that probably made them servants as well. And then the last thing I, I pulled from over there in verse in chapter 13, where it just says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. So they were listening for the Holy Spirit from the Word of God. They were worshiping, praying, fasting. Prayers talked about all through this. And I'll tell you, you, you give me somebody, okay, that's doing all those things, that's teaching God's Word, that's that's giving, that's serving, that's worshiping God, that's praying, that's fasting, that's listening to the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you, I'll give you a group of people that can do anything, anything for God. And that's what they did here. There's just no limits to what you can do. God can take ordinary people and do extraordinary things if you just believe and listen and act out in faith. Lesson number three, we will never fully understand the providence of God. We will never fully understand the providence of God. And you may think, man, this is a little bit of a weird lesson. Where are you going with this, Scott? But I think it's a really important one because, you know, I think life can be hard, right? And, you know, it's not always fair. And uh, I really believe that in so many situations, one of the things Satan does the best is use tragedy or difficulty to derail a Christian to derail the church happens in churches a lot as well and I think we can learn something by this chapter 12 about this let's take a look I'm going to read basically the whole chapter and uh, then we'll talk about it starting in verse 1 it says about the time Herod the king laid violent hands on some of who belonged to the church he killed James the brother of John with a sword and we saw that it had pleased the Jews he proceeded to arrest Peter also this was during the days of unleavened bread and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. And a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that was what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision again, obviously. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, it opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. Man, how often is that? They're sitting there praying, and 
you know, you just don't maybe expect God to answer. You know, they're, they're surprised. They, they're like, you're crazy. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. They could believe it was his angel coming back, but they couldn't believe that it was Peter. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an, an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of God and not of man, almost probably in mockery. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. A lot happening in that chapter, isn't there? <laughs> I could spend all kinds, I could go a million different directions and talk about a lot of different things, but we'd be here all night, okay? Uh, but what I really want to think about is this. When I read this, honestly, what I see here is just a summary, if you will, almost, of the life of a believer. That's going to maybe sound odd, but I see the summary of a life of a believer. And what I mean by that is, is none of this really absolutely makes any sense, right? It doesn't because we don't really know the, the ways of God and we'll never understand the providence of God because I sit here and I think about this and I think to myself, why James? Why did James die and Peter live? Why? Why did God decide to kill King Herod, this King Herod, but he didn't, his grandfather who killed all the babies when Jesus was born? Why? I mean, I bet you this, the family of James, his father Zebedee, I bet they were wondering the same thing. What in the world? My son left. He's following Jesus. He's giving his life to the church. He's an apostle, touched by God. And, and we barely got started, and he's dead? I mean, think about that. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? <clears throat> and I'll tell you, I was thinking about this all week, and it played off of something that happened last Saturday night, actually. I was at home looking at some things, some local headlines and news headlines, and I came across this story of this, this young boy named Bailey. And it really, honestly, I sat there, Aaron was asleep on the couch, because uh, it was probably 1 o'clock in the morning at this time. Um, and literally, I just, tears just started falling down my face as I'm reading about this boy, and I, I, I can't get out of my head the whole week. And this little Bailey is a young nine-year-old boy that uh, I think I, I may have brought a picture or two. This is Bailey, the one there holding his little sister. He's from uh, England. And Bailey had cancer, nine years old. And he had been battling cancer for about 16 months. And he had one goal in life. The doctors had told him that he wasn't going to make it. And he said, I just want one thing. I want to be born. I want to be here when my sister is born. 
and that's his sister. And they told him he'd never make it to that day, but he did. He said, I just want to make it to that day so that I can hold her and that I can feed her, and I want to name her. And he named her Millie. And I just, give some more pictures, I think, Spencer. That's Bailey. That's Bailey holding another one. And that's him and his brother, Riley. That's his dad sitting and reading with him. And that's the whole family. And I just, I read the story a bunch of different times because there's so many things in it. You know, his grandmother told him, said, listen, I would rather, if I could trade places with you, I would. She's, he's like, no, grandma, you got to be a grandma. You can't do that. That's crazy. He said, but then he went and he said he wanted, they, they were encouraging him. They said, listen, you're not going to make it to Christmas probably, but make out a Christmas list anyway. And all of his Christmas list was for his brothers and sisters, one to be born. And he fought all the odds to make it to that day just to hold his little sister. And I don't know why, but for me, I just looked at it. And as a father, it just broke me up. Still does, just thinking about it. And then it says that a couple days later on Christmas Eve, he was sitting there and he was struggling. And his mom looked at him and just said, Bailey, it's time to go home. A tear fell from his eyes and he died. It was just sad. Then the next day, I wake up Sunday morning, I'm reading the paper, and the first thing I see is Babe Loppenberg. He's the story, I don't know if you guys saw the story of his son who plays football, and they just found out he's got leukemia, really rare leukemia that may take his life, and Babe said, he cried for two weeks. I just can't even imagine. And I think about that, and I just think about why, you know? And then I think about the other side of that, and I think about myself, and how lucky and fortunate I am. I mean, every single night, you can ask my children, we pray together as a family, and every night I will assure you that one of the parts of my prayer is I thank God that they're healthy. But I don't know, you know, there's no, sometimes there's just no rhyme or reason to this. And so many people that have dealt with tragedy and dealt with loss in their life. And I know there's people in here today that are dealing with tragedy and loss in their life. And they're dealing with all kinds of hard things. And sometimes it's just hard to figure it out, isn't it? It's hard to understand, you know, why James was killed and why Peter wasn't. You just start thinking about it. And sometimes it'll drive you to question your faith. It will. I see it all the time. I mean, one of the things I get to do is, is I get to go visit a lot of people that are suffering. And it's probably not a week that goes by that I don't hear a story of someone that has a tragedy in their life. And I know that it's hard. And some of them, they just want to run away. I mean, we were talking earlier about a family who they're mad at God. They're mad at God. Because he didn't save their little girl. And honestly, every time I have this discussion and I'm in those situations and I'm trying to, to give comfort, I really have no idea what to say. I just don't. There's just nothing that's really, there's no words that I'm going to give. There's no special thing that I'm going to say that's going to make it all right and that's going to make sense. It never is. But the one thing that I always just tell them is, is no matter what, you got to have faith. No matter what, you got to have faith. Because we don't always understand. The Bible tells us that as high as the heavens are above the earth, God's ways are above our ways. You're just not always going to know why something happens. 
you're just not. And I, I don't know where I, I heard it at. It was, I think, on a story or a movie. I may have read it. It just said, we, never, we can never let what we don't know keep us from what we do. And that's what you got to keep your focus on. You got to keep trusting. You got to keep believing. You got to keep praying. They kept praying. Very in verse 5, it says that, but earnest prayer was made for Peter. They had not abandoned prayer because James had been murdered. They were still praying. And I believe in prayer. I believe that even if I don't understand exactly why, you know, Bailey died, if I don't understand it, I still believe in the power of prayer. I believe that, that God's mercies are unlocked by prayer, they're activated. And when I think about this, it, it reminds me a little bit just reading this story in, of, of Daniel. And in the lion's den, remember how the angels come to shut the mouths of the lion. And it's, it's an unrelated verse, but it's a great verse. And it's a verse that, you know, you should go back and study in Daniel 9, verse 23, where it says that the moment you began to pray or to plead for mercy, depending on your translation. It says, I just love this. The moment you begin to pray, a command was given. I mean, think about that. I don't know why that gives me so much encouragement, but the moment you began to pray, the angel there said, a command was given. We sent help. It was on its way. Now, it may not always work out exactly the way you think it should, but believe me when I tell you that prayer works. I, one of the reasons you know, I wanted that song is God of all my days, and you may or may not know it, but I love that. I love the message behind that, that no matter what's happening in my life, God is the God of all my days. When I'm searching, he's my answer. I love that. You just go back and read the words of that song. When I was blind, he was my vision. He was my freedom. There's great words in that song because I know this, and Stuart said last week that God's plan always prevails. I believe that with all my heart, even, even, even if you don't understand always. Because you're never going to know everything. I mean, Adam and Eve started out. That was the whole basis of what they did, right? They wanted to know everything. We're never going to know everything. But we can never, ever let that take away our faith. Because God is good all the time. And all the time... Exactly. Some great lessons, I think. It's not your way. It's God's way. Ordinary people can do extraordinary things. And even when you don't fully understand things, you can't lose faith. You know, just to kind of bring this thing in, when I think about this early church and about spreading the gospel and these lessons that we're going to try to learn, you know, the first thing that really comes to my mind is just this, is how, how hard it is, how hard it is to go out and to be the light to be, to be a witness, to share your faith. It's hard, isn't it? Another verse that I just love is Luke 14, 28, which just says basically that before you begin, consider the cost. Now, I don't know why that gives me so much comfort. I guess because it just explains those days when I really am just tired of it. Before you begin, count the cost. But I'll tell you the other thing that it does for me when I think about this and I study the, the rest of Acts is it, it reminds me that I can't get discouraged. I just can't get discouraged. I got I to gotta look to God, to his word, follow Christ's example. I can't give up. I got to keep battling. I got to keep going because God's will will be done. 
So listen, I'm going to end. Uh, I, was, I just wanted to come up. I didn't know exactly what it was. I read about every quote from Martin Luther King that I could come up with. But given that this past week we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, I came up with a few. I just couldn't stand for just one. But, you know, some of these you've heard, I'm sure. But just such great loving words that come out of Dr. King's mouth. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. He said also, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. That's really what we're talking about. You just don't know. You don't know. But this one is the one that seemed the most applicable to me. He says, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. And man, when I think about today, when I think about then, the challenge, the controversy of the times that we live in, all I can say is that my prayer is, I hope I measure up. I hope I live up to that challenge and that controversy. So we're going to learn a bunch, the rest of Acts, and learn a lot of lessons from this early church as they were going out and spreading the gospel. And what I want us to do, I want us to be that church. I want us to be that church and go see what God can do with it, okay? Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for your presence in this room tonight, God. Thank you that the Holy Spirit is here and it's poured out amongst these believers, God. So, Lord, I pray that today you'll do something special in this class, in this, this church that we call the pastor's class. God, I pray, Lord, that you would anoint us to do something extraordinary for you. God, please bless us, protect us, keep us. Let us go be on fire for Jesus and win hearts for you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You guys have a great week.